You are now listening to the Millennial Travel Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, podcast listeners? Are you ready for the fifth episode of the new series, the Millennial Travel Podcast? Helping you escape more, spend less, and make travel a priority in your life, which is, of course, the subtitle to the book that I hope you have already gone on Amazon Amazon, and gotten. Sorry, my Texas twang came out uh, there, but look, Millennial Travel Guidebook is my new book, number one on Amazon for budget travel, solo travel, travel tips, Southeast Asia travel, Central America travel, a bunch of categories that we ranked number one for and we are so excited. So if you would like a free chapter on how to find the best deals on flights, you can go to millennialtravelguidebook.com and download that. And if you would like a free audio chapter on how to save more money and make more money for travel, you can listen to just a few episodes ago, MTP, the Millennial Travel Podcast number two. And you can get a free uh, sample of the audio book. So I hope that gives you a nice resource. And uh, also wanted to say thank you for all the support of the Under 30 Experiences community during this difficult COVID time. We are back to running USA trips intense, socially distanced, making, uh, doing our very best effort, making our very best effort to ensure everyone's safety while still uh, letting them experience the great outdoors and operate as a small business, which is so important uh, in these difficult economic times. Uh, We are just really grateful uh, for the support of our community and what we are doing here And uh, we just want to say thank you. Thank you guys for the support for the book. And thank you guys for the support of our new USA National Parks trips. We've got a couple seats left, I think. I think. Don't quote me on it. But uh, possibly Great Smoky Mountains, Acadia, Maine, Yosemite. I know I think we have a couple seats left on that one. And then we're talking about wintertime trips Lake Tahoe, Zion, and Bryce Canyon, as well as Joshua Tree. So really exciting stuff on the horizon. And you can check that out at under30experiences.com. But without further ado, I want to introduce you to a very, very smart, thoughtful individual, Shannon Stowell. And Shannon uh, is the CEO of the Adventure Travel Trade Association. We talk all about COVID, the new normal, what travel looks like going forward. So please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson. And today we're here with Shannon Stowell. He is the CEO of the ATTA, the Adventure Travel Trade Association the largest professional organization for adventure travel companies. He was previously the co-founder of Altrek, an outdoor gear retailer, and has two really cool projects that I'm excited to talk to him about. One is Tomorrow's Air, 
the world's first traveler collective to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it permanently, and the Adventure Travel Conservation Fund that directly funds local projects engaged in the conservation of unique natural and cultural resources of adventure travel destinations. Shannon, happy to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Matt. No, you're, you're very welcome. Uh, we are recording this, of course. Uh, what was once thought of probably as just going to be a very short period of time, uh, referring to COVID-19 and the pandemic crisis, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, certainly a crisis when it comes to the adventure travel uh, <laughs> Uh, industry but um, yeah so we are in the middle of that and last uh, I spoke with you you were way out in the mountain in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado completely off the grid is that right that's right that explains my beard it's just too much of a pain to shave so yeah I, my, my wife and I have been up off grid for about three weeks now and came into civilization to chat with you today no, ha happy, uh, happy you were able to carve out some time. Um, I actually would love to just hear about your, your setup up there. Uh, you mentioned no running water and you've been up there for a couple months. Is that right? Yeah, I, you know, over the last year, we've spent about two months there and there's no, we have no power and, and no running water. We, uh, we do get water from a neighbor's well who's been kind enough to let us have unlimited access to that, but it means hauling it in jugs and buckets so it makes you it makes you appreciate convenience and it also makes you use less water because it is really a pain carrying water so you get a lot more frugal with it but we you know we shower every day we just do bucket showers heat it up and keep it simple and so it's it's actually it's it's been really instructive on how little we actually need to to get by and and even just not even just get by, but to enjoy life. That, that's amazing. And Shannon, where do you normally live? So my, my, uh, my wife and I, we live in the Monroe, Washington area. We're actually in, in, in unincorporated Snohomish County in Washington state, but we're here in Colorado, which is uh, my home state. And we're here seeing family and just enjoying some time in the hills and still working, but having some mountain time too. That's, that's great. Uh, you, you say an unincorporated uh, county. What, what exactly does that mean? So we're not in any city limits. So I can say we're near Monroe. We're 45 minutes from Seattle, but we're out on a, on a county road. So okay, quiet in both places, but no. quieter in Colorado. That's, that's nice. Have you, uh, have you always been have you always lived in a rural area? Uh, I know uh, I'll preface that uh, by saying that so many millennials would love to make that shift. And I, I wrote an article just last week about how millennials are fleeing the nine to five life and getting out of the cities and trying to settle down in places, A, where they, they won't directly be in contact with so many people, but B, just a, a uh, less expensive cost of living um, and yeah. one that you're more in touch with nature. So uh, I'd love to dig in a little bit and hear how you kind of found that to be the way for, for you. Has it always been that yeah. way for you? You know, uh, kind of. We, we grew up in Littleton, Colorado. And then when I was a teenager, young teenager, my family moved to Salida. 
my parents had a restaurant here for 37 years. So, um, and then I lived in Seattle, went to college there, right in the city. So um, I, I love Seattle, it's a great place. Um, but because we're in the adventure travel business and we travel so much and we do go to a lot of cities, like in the last year I've spent quite a bit of time in New York and Tokyo and San Francisco and um, you know, even pushing a little further back, Beijing and Sao Paulo and Rio. So I, I spend time in a lot of cities. So when we come home, I love to just sort of disappear. Um, so it's not like, I'm definitely not an introvert and um, I, don't, uh, I don't hate cities, but I don't love long periods of time in big cities. I do prefer the quieter places, but we see so much in, in the travels that we do that it's pretty easy for us to enjoy being a little bit disconnected when we get, get back home. So this has been a very strange year. This is the longest period of time that I haven't gotten on a plane since I think I was probably 25 or 26. So, wow. Yeah. And honestly, I'm loving it. I mean, I'm not happy. I'm not happy about what's going on at all. It's terrible, but on a personal level, um, I'm enjoying not going through airports, no security lines, none of that stuff. Uh, I'll be ready to get back out there, but I'm, I'm taking the break and trying to enjoy that, that bit of non-airport world. That's great. And, and so when you're, uh, I, I think uh, it's funny for so many city dwellers, um, and I'm a reluctant city dweller at the moment in a condo in Austin where it's too damn hot to even go outside. I get out at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. and that's really yeah. about it um, for and you know, so many of our readers, as I think I was telling you uh, before we started recording, you know, people are, are very interested in these concepts of uh, living off the grid and, and this type of thing. But so when you're, when you're up there, um, I guess first question is how do you charge your electronics? And you yeah. say you have no power, so I'd love to know that. And then how do you pass the time if you're yeah. probably conserving energy? You're probably not on your phone, your iPad all day. It's definitely eliminated some behaviors completely. Like since our cabin has no connection, I wake up in the morning when I'm home in Washington, I wake up and the first thing I do is I look at my schedule and then I wonder about my emails and then I look at social. I don't do any of that here. And it's so healthy. I wake up and I, and I, like this morning, we went and sat on the porch and had coffee for 20 minutes and just didn't do anything. Watch the hummingbirds. And, um, but we, we, have, we bought a number of, of solar devices. So we have five or six little lights, like a Lucy. Lucy is our favorite, and, I, and I'm not sponsored by them. I just love it because it never shuts off. We, we put it out there even on semi-cloudy days. We have light all night. Um, so we do that. Wow. We've got a, a um, battery charger that we can actually charge our computers on. Uh, it's not sufficient for full work days for two computers. So we're, we're looking at getting another one. We also roll into town every once in a while, like I am today, and we'll charge up, charge up all the batteries and then take them back with us. Um, we spend a lot more time hiking and walking. And because we're, we live in a tiny community that's a former ghost town, and I, I never tell people the name because our, our community is trying to keep it off the map. Um, but it's a, it's a former ghost town that now has three year-round residents and then about 20 people like us who show up for part of the year. And, um, and it's, 
it's true community like I've never experienced because there are no services there. So you need a cup of sugar, you walk over to the neighbors. You need a bag of ice, you ask the guy that's going to town that day, hey, will you grab me some ice? Um, we've been invited, we got invited over for dinner two nights ago at the last minute for an amazing meal. And we've jumped each other's cars when they're stranded. We've cut wood with each other. And it's this very natural, um, it's very natural community. Not that it's perfect because people aren't, um, but it's, it's really cool. I love it. I've, I've borrowed stuff, I've loaned stuff, I've given stuff. My two, two of my neighbors are, take, are upgrading their solar so that, that they have more access because they're year round. And they're gonna give us their panels. So we're gonna go with a, an older, a little bit out, outdated panel. It'll give us enough to charge our computers and have light bulbs in each room if we want it. Um, so it's, wow. it's cool, it's a good way of living. And you know, we're not here year round, but if we were, we would figure out the gardening but it's, it's also at 8,500 feet. So um, mm. it takes some different, different tips and tricks and there's wildlife. Um, a mountain lion left a kill in our backyard just before we bought the, the cabin. Uh, so it's very wild where we're at. So we don't let our dog run out at night or anything like that because it's a little, uh, a little sketchy. Wow, that uh, sounds like a heck of an adventure. I, it's, I, it's making me miss uh costa rica where I, I lived for i don't know i've been going down there since 2012 so the mm. better part of the last seven or eight years um I, yeah i was living down there and that sense of community is so important and just just so nice actually I, i'm sure you've probably been to manuel antonio uh or capo have you been to that area of costa rica by I chance haven't. i oh, haven't wow. okay yeah. have you been to costa rica I have, but only once. I'm a beginner with Costa Rica. Okay. But I'll be back. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, let me know when you, not that you don't have any contacts and you can go any adventure travel destination and uh, look up a bunch of people. But yeah, if you do go, let me, let me know. But you understand it's that type of community where mm -hmm. people help each other out because, you know, when you're, well, to contrast that when you're in the city, it's like you don't know your neighbors, you wouldn't, depending on where you live, you're probably not going to ask your neighbor for help. You're going to call somebody and pay money to get whatever you needed done. Right. And it's just a, kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird thing. I don't know how we yeah. evolved like this. Yeah, it is, it's so interesting. I, I feel like the pace thing is such a problem where I think the, the hurriedness of life in uh, not only in big cities, but even where we live in Washington in a suburban sort of environment, um, the pace that we're forced to keep um, by the choices that we've made, the, the size of houses that we live in, the amount of stuff we own and have to maintain and, and you know, keep, keep up, I think it, it translates into never slowing down. And so that's the thing that I love the most about the place that we're in now in Colorado is the overwhelming feeling is slow down and look around and enjoy. And I, you know, I'm, I'm 50, I'm almost 52. And I'm at a point now where it's important to me to slow down. And it wasn't important to me 10 years ago, but it is now. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that, that's great. And um, I'd love to, to get into that a little bit, but I wanna maybe back up so we can hear part of your story. It, not everybody figures this out 
at any point in their life or maybe they get too old and they can't hike and then they're you know you know they're right then they're confined to the rocking chair let's say right. and then they might enjoy um you know a little slower pace of life but uh, you were co-founder uh, of Altrack as I uh, mentioned an outdoor gear retailer and um, it seemed like it was a, a pretty good sized company so were you go 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 from the start of your career um, pretty much you know I, I actually had an eight-year stint before that too which was in environmental chemistry so I had a biology degree I wanted to be a fisheries scientist I was totally uh, inspired by Jacques Cousteau videos as a little kid and books um, and uh, side note, we just had his granddaughter, Celine Cousteau, speak at one of our events. So it's kind of this uh, magical moment of having uh, one of Jacques' uh, offspring actually speak at one of our events. It was just incredible. And she's amazing. Um, but anyway, so I, I wanted to be a biologist. I wanted to be a fisheries scientist. And I could not find a job in it after college. There was some, I didn't even know what it was. There was something going on where there were no jobs in that space. And so I took a job at an environmental chemistry lab and chemistry was not my forte, but I did it for a little while. But I, I, my boss allowed me to pursue a market in Korea for us because they wanted an American laboratory to test the soil and water. So it just, my first time in Korea, I'll never forget. It was my first you know, significant travel experience as an adult just standing there being blown away by the difference in Asia between Asia and how I had grown up very white bread Colorado and I fell in love with it and so I started traveling all around Asia to, to build out our, our network of services and that really got the travel bug going but I left there after eight years to, to co-found alltrek.com which went for 16 years unfortunately it did end up going out of business a few years ago um, which is a, a, a sad story that involved a, a, um, a hacking that took the site down at the wrong time and it got off on inventory cycles and ended up folding. But Ooh. at its peak, it was, I want to say it was somewhere around 50 million in sales of outdoor gear. And we were the first, to my knowledge, the first internet pure play selling outdoor gear. We were the first to sell outdoor gear on amazon.com. We actually negotiated directly with Amazon. And um, I love this little side note because it's something that would never happen again. But we, we backed Amazon down in a negotiation because they really wanted outdoor gear and we were the only ones that could deliver it in the way they wanted it. And we came to a percentage that we were trying to agree on and we walked away from the deal over a, a half a percentage point because we knew it was going to be a hard, hard relationship. And they called us back the next day and said, you win. Uh, let's do this and uh so it's a funny a funny note now that they're the they're who they are i'm sure nobody can back them down anymore um but uh so that's a little side note but so i was there for six years and in the middle of that i joined the atta as a member and that's when i learned about the the association and after a little while I realized that there wasn't a whole lot happening and i thought man this this industry is full of amazing people and stories but there's nothing holding them together. And I'd been in the outdoor industry for six years. The Outdoor Industry Association is an amazing association for outdoor gear retailers and brands. And so I thought, man, there must be an opportunity like that here. So that's where the dream of ATTA started. 
Wow, that's that's really cool. Yeah, thank you for for sharing uh, all that. And so, <laughs> I guess the the original question, uh, in addition to just asking you for your your story, um, to run a company or co-found a company like that. Um, and of course, even just running the ATTA, which we can get to in a minute. Uh, I mean, I, I know how it is when I'm kind of in the saddle or on a, on a work day. I mean, it's, it's hardly get up or I, I forgot. I mean, I, I do intermittent fasting in the morning, so I conveniently skip breakfast, but I don't want to go too long without eating. I'll wither away to nothing. Today it got to be 12.45 and I was like, oh man, I really need to just shut this computer screen and go and, and get something to eat or <laughs> before it's too late. So uh, I'm sure you know how it is, but I think people listening would be interested in how someone like yourself now manages their time and carves out that time to take the 20 minutes in the morning to have coffee without looking at, at your phone. And um, yeah, I'd love to kind of hear what some of your personal practices are in regards to work. Sure. Well, you know, the, the first many years of my work with ATTA and all of my years with Alltrek, I think it'd be easy to say I was a complete workaholic, you know, and, and I remember when we started ATTA in the early days, because we had no, no income, and I had given up my job at Alltrek, and so it was a scary time. We sold a bunch of stuff. We rented out our house and moved into my parents' house. This is 17 years ago now. And, um, and I sold my prized possession, which was the first edition of Moby Dick, um, that I found in a garage sale that I didn't know was a first until later researching. Whoa. Um, so... So in those days, there were days where I was waking up at four in the morning with the fear of failure and the excitement of success. And I put in a lot of long days for a lot of years. So, you know, this is definitely an evolution for me. Um, I took a sabbatical at the end of 2019 because I'd been in this role for 16 years at that point. And um, so, so I had three months off where I, we spent a month off grid in Colorado and then a month in Brazil where my wife is from and then a month back in Washington. And I literally walked right back into the door into the pandemic. Wow. And, and so it was a really, I'm really glad I did it because it was, I needed that rest, but also, man, what a rough reentry it was. So um, I'll, you know, just to be totally transparent, I work less hours now because it is so heavy. Uh, during the pandemic, the emotional weight of running an association that has um, roughly 1,400 members, and each one of those has many employees, and we have lots of former members that stay in touch with us, lots of sponsor partners, lots of destinations, you know, friends, and, you know, so many people in the travel space are in such a rough, rough situation right now that, uh, that I've made the decision to mostly not work Fridays. Um, because it's so heavy, you can't do this five days in a row, or I can't do it anymore. So I, I try to preserve my energy through um, taking Fridays off and hiking. We, we do a lot of hiking and exploring in the backcountry. And, um, you know, I, I've got my own personal faith that I lean on. Uh, my wife's a great, great life partner. 
my kids are awesome. We have a great dog. And so I really try to focus energy on friends and family and things that I love. And, and then try to put work in perspective. Like it is important. What we're doing right now is vitally important. I'm totally inspired by it. It's also really gnarly out there in the travel space. So trying to pace myself because I think it's going to be an endurance game. And um, having done several startups and being not 20 anymore <laughs> or not 30, I know, my, I know my limits. And so I'm having to say no to a lot more things. And that's, that's a very important exercise. I was talking with a friend about this. When you're young in your career, you should say yes to almost everything. And then at a certain point, and it's not clear where that point is, and it might even move back and forth a little. But there's this point where you have enough experience and enough knowledge and enough ability and skill. And I'm not bragging because there's lots of things I'm terrible at. But I'm just saying when you figure out who you are and what you're good at, that's the time to start saying no to all those other things where you go, I could say yes to this. And I have a friend who I, who I won't name, but he, he's an amazing creative. And he took a role that would just make most people's jaws drop at how cool it was but it wasn't a fit. It didn't fit his, his, the creative person that he was and it just tore him apart. And that's actually where he and I discovered this yes, no line concept of say yes to everything until you kind of know who you are and what you're good at and then start saying no. And only say yes to those things that, you're, that you're, you know your time is best spent. And it's harder for some personalities. I have friends who have no problem saying no. They're like, no. Nope, um, I'm not one of those. I'm, I tend to say yes. So for me, the battle is to continue to go back to the, I'm sorry, but um, I don't have any extra energy to give on this. Wow, well, that's, that's a really cool way to, to think about it. I can remember, well, for me, 10, year, 10 years ago was basically college um, yeah. or just out of school. And you're absolutely right. You want to go and explore and do as many things as you possibly can and try to figure it out um, and get those different experiences and you figure out what you like, what you don't like. And then hopefully later in your career, you can, you can focus. Um, right. What you, whatever, find what you're built to do. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I've been, I've been struggling with it. Uh, obviously through COVID, um, as it's been a really difficult time, but also <laughs> through also during during COVID, uh, my daughter was born, and wow. so congratulations by the way. And that's, thank you. That's tough. It during was that time. Yeah, and this was so. This was early April when things were very unknown as to is COVID here? Is COVID here in Austin? Or it was just starting to, you know, there was just starting to be cases and you got to be in a hospital and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the mask and the whole, the whole deal. It was a weird I time. Can't to imagine. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. crazy. And so now, so I, I was supposed to take a month off of paternity leave, but that just got completely torn to shreds because it was yeah. crisis mode. Um, and then it became, well, okay, I'm quarantined at home. So that actually is kind of nice because I'm here. I'm not at our, our office or our yep. co-working space. <laughs> Although that comes with its unique set of challenges, having a newborn baby yes. around in your office the whole time. So <laughs> yes, 
it's well, um, good, good on you for for going for it and and i'm you know wish you all the best my my daughter is 23 now and it's uh one of the best things that can ever happen thank you thank you yeah it's i'm and i've been trying to while i don't take fridays off i've been trying to finish work at four Yep. And it is such a mad scramble for me to get what I need to get done by then. And sure, yeah, I take little breaks to go and, you know, poke at the baby and change a diaper or two during the day or uh, whatever it is that dads do. Like my wife might say, hey, I really need to go to the bathroom. Will you watch her for a bit? <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing? Yep. Um, yeah. But yeah, just trying to, you got, you're absolutely right. You, have to say no to more things and um, it, it makes me much more cognizant of how much time am I spending on social media and is yeah. my time driving revenue especially during God, a survival time yeah. um, for no the doubt. industry yeah it's just it's just nuts so mm -hmm. uh, but yeah thanks for thanks for sharing that Shannon and um, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more of some of your your travels, uh, I think you piqued our interest here saying about Korea and then you traveled through Asia. You mentioned that your wife is from Brazil. It sounds like you spent a good amount of time down there. So yeah, walk us through maybe um, where are the types of places that you like to go, I guess would be a good question. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny when I first got introduced to Asia, um, and I've heard other people say this um, for different regions, but I had no interest in South America, which now I just find absolutely ridiculous and close-minded. But I was so enthralled with Asia. And so um, when we started ATTA, I really tried to focus. We actually almost did our first event in China back in 2005, which I think would have maybe been the end of us because... Um, because we barely pulled it off in our own hometown of Seattle two years in a row. It was way harder than we thought because we weren't conference people, but we knew we needed a conference. So we just, we put on a conference and we, we built one in the, in the image that we wanted. And, um, and so we did some things a little differently. And, um, and one of those is pre-summit adventures. So we have a, a series of adventures that happen for the people who attend our annual Adventure Travel World Summit. And it does a couple of interesting things. One is it introduces them to that destination, but secondly, it breaks the ice so people really get to know each other and have new best friends. So anyway, I focused a lot on Asia. So I've, I've been to China a few times. I like the off the beaten path places. You know, honestly, I haven't been to Paris and I, I, if I get to go, that'll be great. It's not on my list and it's not to knock it. I'm just not interested in places that are super known as much as I like the unknown places. And so in, in some cases that has uh, felt a little arrogant. Like I, I didn't have an interest in seeing the pyramids in Egypt because they were such a big thing. And then I finally got there and realized why it was such a big thing. And it felt like some personal arrogance that needed to be beat down there. So I don't say it in any sort of, um, in any sort of sense that I'm better than anybody else. I just like the quieter places. I like the weird places. The weirdest places I've been are the ones that stick in my head, like uh, in, uh, on Svalbard in Norway. It's an archipelago up there. 
And we got stranded in a town that is all Russian coal miners. There's no Norwegians in it, but it's wow. in Norway. And it's some sort of Russian. I didn't even understand how they described how it was administered, but it was like this friendly, this deal. But it was one of the most bizarre places I'd ever been. Our guide actually said he, he, it felt to him like Russia 50 years ago, like the Soviet Union 50 years ago. And wow. um, I only ended up talking to the guide and one other person. Everyone else was so afraid they went in their homes and shut their doors when we walked by. So it wasn't like a deep cultural experience. It was just this absolutely alien experience. And then um, in Brazil, we love the off the beaten path places. I mean, Rio actually, I will say Rio, is the prettiest city in the world, in my opinion. When you get up on the Sugarloaf and look out over Rio, it's just an absolutely spectacular view. And the people are amazing. But we love quiet Brazil. We go to places that are, that are off the map. A place called Rio do Rastro that gets snow once in a while in Brazil. To my knowledge, it's the only place because it's somewhat high altitude and it has this perfect um, uh, meshing of different uh, temperature trade winds or something like that. Um, but I would say if I, if I had to pick one trip to relive, it would be Kurdistan, which is in northern Iraq. And I went in 2017 with my son. He was 16 when we started the trip and, and he turned 17 on the trip. And um, that trip, I still have a little a book where I took all my notes and that's probably the thing that's tapping at the back of my head the most is to write that story because we had just an experience that honestly can't be replicated. And I think those are the best trips. Those are the ones that where you do have a guide, but a guide that understands serendipity and also the, the passions of the people that are in their group. And instead of sticking to a, you know, on this day, on this hour, we're doing this, on this day, on this hour, we're doing this, to be able to say, oh, you guys like archaeology? Okay, boy, do I have some stuff to show you. Um, so, you know, we, we had every experience on that trip from seeing and feeling and hearing the, bomb, the final bombings on ISIS from a hillside 15, 15 kilometers away to um, being in the in the control room where the the um, Iraqi Kurdish and U.S. forces were working together on on finishing the pinch of ISIS, to um, mountains and deserts and waterfalls. You know, we walked into this place where it was ankle deep water running from a river, and there's hundreds of Kurds and Arabs from uh, from southern Iraq all enjoying music and water and this just incredible experience. We, we saw Saddam Hussein's torture chambers, which was very sobering. We got invited in for tea so many times that I, you know, you can't even count it. Um, one time I had a, we had a woman offer to, a Bedouin woman offer to uh, slaughter a goat and we would spend the day sitting in her tent, drinking tea and talking while she prepared the goat, which we declined politely because we had to keep moving. Um, but it was just such a mind-bending experience. Went into the holy place of the Yazidis, welcomed into it. It's uh, the Yazidi people group, which is a, a, a group up in the plains of Nineveh, and it's its own religion. And um, we got to go to the holy place where everyone in town is barefoot. You can't wear your shoes into the, 
into the town and went through every place except the holiest of places where no visitors go. Um, went to a refugee camp and heard the stories. So there, there was a lot of heartbreak on that trip, but also there's no McDonald's, there's no Starbucks. There's nothing like that. It is, it is Iraq and it is Kurdish Iraq and it is, it is one of the most special places to go because it's got a stunning history. The people are super wonderful and kind and you finally feel like you've gone somewhere where you're not being sold something from your home country if you're from the US. You know, you're, <laughs> there's no sure. IF. And oh man, I hope those brands don't make it in there. Wow. Yeah, it's um, whew, not to not to get into the military industrial complex, but it starts to think about it. I started to think about when you said that, God, maybe we are just trying to democratize it so we can go in there and sell stuff. Um, but that's it is a, complicated. It is yes. a complicated. It's a complicated, complicated world. And the, the rules change all the time, you know, and at the end of the day, at the end of the day, my hope is that travel helps people connect to each other and humanize each other and understand, you know, we are not each other's enemies. Our governments might be enemies with each other, but we as people, we are not enemies. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim and I'm Christian or you're atheist and I'm Buddhist. It doesn't matter. You know, we should be taking care of each other. And um, so that, that to me is one of the most, most powerful tools in travel is that the ability to meet somebody who's so different than you and you go, huh, they're so nice. <laughs> they're so kind. Why am I thinking this way about this group of people or, or you know, this race or whatever it is? And I, I have an amazing story about my dad who's, who passed away two years ago, having his mind totally changed in a situation like that. And so I've seen it firsthand. I've experienced it firsthand. Um, yeah, I think travel is powerful. I'm so happy that you brought that up, and I have not recorded a podcast since uh, George Floyd and all of mm -hmm. the social injustice issues going on in uh, yeah. the United States. I've, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was to me it was two crises, crises on top of one another. Just when we thought uh, it was like that wave had gone down from COVID before a second wave, but then we had this whole next media uh, storm. And yeah, whew, yeah it was just uh, un unbelievable, but I'm really happy that you brought that up. Um, and for, for listeners, most of the content that uh, they'll be hearing and have heard over the last few weeks uh, has been stuff that was just recorded pre-COVID and, yeah. um, and all yeah. that, but wow, yeah, thank you for, thank you for mentioning that. And uh, on a very travel related, sort of travel specific note, why did you <laughs> decide to go to Iraq? Um, as I understand, you say uh, Kur Kurdistan, um, mm. the Kurdish people don't actually have a, a home. They're spread out across That's a bunch right. of different countries and uh, as I, it's been a while since I've kept up on this type of thing, but uh, the U.S. government was funding the Kurdish people to fight against ISIS and protect yep. the lands where they had uh, strongholds. We're talking Syria and yep. um, these type of uh, bordering countries. 
But right. so you decided I'm going to book a flight to Iraq. Is that how did well, you come upon this? It, it's not quite as dramatic as, as it sounds because um, I'd been there in 2009. So here's Iraq and then the three nor four northernmost provinces are Kurdish. And so it, they have a tenuous relationship with Baghdad because there is oil in Kurdistan. But the Kurds at the point that, that the, the whole Saddam situation all kind of fell out, the Kurds managed to secure their borders within Iraq and, and they've been trying for independence. And it, I won't even go there because it's so complicated and the US has been a great friend and a terrible betrayer in the whole process. So we don't have clean hands either in that, in that situation. Um, but the, you know, the, the, when I went in 2009, I went with the, with the government and when, when we were just about to leave, so I was hosted by the Minister of Tourism, and uh, when I was just about to leave, they said, oh, by the way, there's an American who has lived here for 17 years who does a tour business. Would you like to meet him? And I said, absolutely. And so I met him, and, and I told him some of the places we went. He's like, did they tell you that that's where um, uh, King Darius took down, uh, took down the empire? And I said, no. And, he, and they said, did they tell you that 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 city you were in the, the, is the origin of the three wise men story from Jesus's birth. I said, no. He said, come back and I'll take you on another tour. And so eight years later I went and Kurdistan is actually, at, at least at the time, was very safe. Rel I mean, relatively safe. It's surrounded by trouble, right? Syria, um, the Turkish border with, with Kurdistan is troubled and then Iran, Iraq border is troubled. And then the, the South, Iraq was troubled as well. So I described it as like this little donut hole of peace um, surrounded by a lot of trouble. But the airport is, is I can't remember what, how the rating service works, but it's very safe. So we flew in from Amman, Jordan. So I love Jordan. We, we've done three events there. And so I just tacked it on. Um, both, both times that I went, I tacked it on to a trip to Jordan. So we finished the trip to Jordan. My, my son helped us uh, volunteer at the event. And then he and myself and three industry friends flew on to Erbil, which, is, uh, which has a citadel that has been continuously, somebody's continuously lived in it for 8,000 years. There's been somebody in it for 8,000 years. And so it's one of the oldest pieces of civilization. And it's a civilization built on a civilization built on a civilization so it's multiple layers in this citadel so i loved the experience so much the first time i went i just couldn't get it out of my head i told a couple of friends and so one of my friends that went with us the second time um got a got the cover travel story in the new york times for that for that trip that we took and uh, you can look it up online it's called uh, i think it's called haunted by war and kurdistan and okay so my friend Tim was on that trip and, and wrote, the, wrote the story about it. And um, I love the place because um, the people are so genuine and kind. Um, we had funny conversations. There was one guy that, that would not accept that I was not CIA. And I said, no, I'm, I really am here on tourism. He's like, nobody's here on tourism. You're CIA. I promise you I'm not CIA. But there was no convincing. So there were funny moments too. But um, uh, it's just a land with so many incredible traditions and so much history. We went to the, the, the tomb of Nahum, 
which is, was, was taken care of by Jewish families for hundreds of years. And then the Jews all had to flee Iraq and they handed it over to a Christian family who now takes care of it. There's no fee. There's no gate. Well, there is a gate. There's, a guy comes out and unlocks it and you get to walk in and see. So it's this really raw tourism experience versus hyper-packaged, hyper-sterile. Um, and, you know, of course, there's some risk to it. There's risk everywhere. Um, our guide was an incredible guide who told us about a couple of times when he had encountered people that he just knew were ISIS in Kurdistan and and. One of, the, one of our group wanted to go to Mosul to do photography because he's a world-class photographer and our guide was like, absolutely not. So there are no-go places, but that's why you go to these places with a guide who is intimately familiar with the place. And, um, and so it was, it was an incredible experience. And that guide's story, our guide named Balin, it could be one of the best blockbuster movies ever ever filmed his story is unbelievable and um and i won't go into it here because it's a it's a 10-hour podcast by itself but so you meet these characters who just have these lives that are so wildly different than your own and it just changes the way you look at the world and how you look at people and you know part of me wanted to get out of the travel industry and get involved in helping refugee camps which wasn't realistic for me um but it makes you realize how blessed you are when you when you encounter people who have gone through real hardship and it makes your own hardship look pretty manageable wow well that's (laughs) shannon i think you win the award for most off the beaten path trip that we've heard. However, I was, anybody heard me typing? I apologize. I tried to type on mute, but I was taking a note uh, to link in the, the show notes, which will be found at under30experiences.com slash blog, an episode that I did with my friend Jordan Harbinger. And uh, mm. Jordan uh, recounted his trip to North Korea, which was mm. super interesting, which uh, previously was the most off the beaten path uh, trip sure. that um I, you know i don't i don't know who is more off the beaten path here because north korea it's not like we can just go there uh actually do you do you, do you know anything about uh, north korea and uh and tourism there you know i don't know anything current because i think it's been pretty shut off i think there are a few people that can still get in um the photographer friend that was with us mark edward harris who um, wanted to go uh, uh, photograph in Mosul. Um, he, he has been to North Korea, I want to say five or six times, maybe more, and even published a photography book on North Korea. So he told us stories about it, and it's probably all the ones everyone has heard about handlers and bugged rooms and very specific itineraries. There's no off the beaten path. You know, you're very controlled in what you do. Um, there is a book that came out called, I think it's called Firefly. And it hmm. is, have you heard of this? No. So I think I have the name right. If you Google um, literature smuggled out of North Korea, this is like in the last five years, somebody smuggled short story writing out of North Korea from someone in North Korea who, you know, they veiled everything. So there's no way to track back to who this person is. And it, it is one of the most interesting and 
chilling readings I've done in many years because they're fictionalized, but they're not. You can wow. tell. And I've never, I think what's so different about it is that you can tell the person writing it has grown up in a, in such a different mindset than anything you've ever come across, unless you're North Korean, that it is alien. It is, is some of the most alien writing, but so heartbreaking and interesting. I highly recommend it. Um, I gave my copy away. I read it and gave it to somebody. I can't remember who, but I'm kind of itching to go back and reread it again because it's so, because there is that human, common human experience from a completely bizarre platform. So I highly okay. recommend it. I will, uh, I will absolutely link that up and um, in the show notes here. And, and Shannon, if you ever get to read a book, uh, which is also very fascinating, um, that just popped into my head that I, I can't help but share because it's one of, one of my favorite reads, uh, something like How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. Have you, have you happened to come across this book? It's, no. um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating and it's told it's written all in the first person, uh, or no, third person, I, I'm getting this confused, but they put you in the driver's seat of the character, and I've never read a book that was, mm. okay, in the morning, you wake up and uh, be at four in the morning because chickens are rising outside in your uh, rice paddy, and it takes you through the story of you growing up poor in, Southeast Asia or, or wherever, um, and then becoming this kind of corrupt tycoon, uh, tycoon out there yeah. and what you had to do to get there. And yes, yeah, it's a fascinating story interesting. As, as well. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll uh, have to check that out. It sounds interesting. It, it'll be a good off the grid reading for you. Yes. <laughs> well, I was well, going to say too, I don't want to make yeah. it sound like everywhere I go is off the beaten path. Like when I went to Brazil, we, we spent the month on Florianopolis, which is an island. And we spent a lot of time on some pretty crowded beaches. And at first I was, I was um, chafing a little. And then I just sort of got into, the, got into the swing and we had a really good time. And, you know, the Brazilian culture is just lovely. And so it's not like everything I do is, you know, super extreme i didn't i want to be clear on that I, I i appreciate you know normal places as well but um yeah no the ones that stick out are the ones that are the the most off the off the normal path right absolutely no thank you thank you for sharing that and um i i did want to uh jump back a little bit because i'd be remiss not to ask a little bit more about um social justice and i know it's been huge uh lately within the travel industry to yep. try to have more people of color just in the travel industry in general and right. um we're at under 30 experiences we're very proud of the fact that we do have uh, a diverse team or at least so we thought until we really examined even further and said, no, we can do better. And I think a lot of companies are out there. Um, and if, if someone is listening to this and uh, they're probably not in the travel industry, or maybe they are, but if they're uh, a consumer, you know, we're all consumers in some way, shape or form. And so I'd love to maybe ask if you have any tips 
for people when they are going out and they're, you know, I've given countless sustainable travel tips. And um, I I do want to ask you, of course, about climate change in a second. But if people are trying to go out and book something for themselves that is specifically racially uh, diverse and Mm -hmm. supports the right causes for people of color, because that is the topic um, at the moment. What would you what would you suggest to them? To travelers or businesses, are you thinking? To travelers, yeah. If they're going out there and they want to book a trip, and most people know how to book something that is uh, more better for the environment. Yeah. What about for the actual people? Well, you know, there, there is a challenge. And, um, and the, I think the challenge from my perspective is that travel was an industry birthed in privilege, right? If you were working a farm or, you know, a, you know, a, a hand-to-mouth, uh, in a hand-to-mouth environment, um, you weren't traveling. It was the wealthy that were traveling, which meant mostly Americans, North Americans, and Europeans. That's really where the modern travel industry was birthed. And so I think it naturally followed that a lot of the industry is white. And, you know, the outdoor industry, outdoor recreation has a similar challenge. I think they've been attacking that in the U.S. pretty, in a, in a great, you know, pretty aggressively over the last at least decade or 15 years that I've, that I've observed because I was a part of that for a while. Um, so I think travel has a lot of work to do. And I think that's the, the discussion that's, that's echoing around right now is what is going to make meaningful change? And because doing social media posts, okay, it, it shows your position or your supposed position. Um, is it more important that you try to find a, uh, that your next employee from the BIPOC community? Probably to give it a good solid shot. Um, there are not. Uh, most of the businesses out there that are owned are owned by white, white people. There's just, it just is the reality. So I don't know what to tell a traveler other than to, you know, spend some, if they're, if they really want to make a difference and support a business that's owned by an indigenous or black or person of color. I think that's a, that's a a fantastic mission. Um, In some cases it might be hard to find that person, especially if you're doing like a, a Scandinavian, you know, fjord tour, it's probably going to be pretty hard to find. Um, So I think for me, I guess the answer is a little more complicated because I feel like my job is to figure out how to integrate, you know, from a diversity standpoint and equity standpoint and an inclusion standpoint into our adventure travel space. Actually, we're, we're launching a study, hopefully in the next two weeks about diversity in adventure travel. And, um, and so we've actually found a financial funding partner for that. So I guess doing your research, there are some great black owned businesses out there. There's lots of indigenous owned businesses. Um, one of our, one of the things that's been important for ATTA since early on is that indigenous people are part of the economic equation of tourism and are part of the decision-making when there's a tour that goes through their, through their land, through their location. You know, we all know of the terrible colonial image of almost petting zoo behavior 
of treating the locals as though they were an exhibit to be enjoyed, which is obviously hideous. And so I myself have gotten on my knee and had to bow my head and wait to be given permission to stand up by a Namibian chief. And it felt appropriate and I loved it. It's like, this is his world. He's the boss. I'm the visitor. And I think that's an attitude we need to take. This is just a little side note, but an attitude that we as travelers need to take with us is it's our right, it's our privilege, not our right. It's our privilege to go to these places. And it is not our right. And so when Chief Mayuni, when I was instructed, when you walk in the room, you get on your knee and you don't look up until he gives you permission. And he and I had met before in a different location and he was really friendly. And so I smiled when I looked up at him and he gave me the fiercest get back in your place look that I've experienced in my whole life. And I realized, okay, he's the chief here. Like I need to really accept this. And, and, you know, I am the subservient one in, in, in this, in this location. And I had no problem with it. I feel like that's, that's appropriate. Like, I know I'm off course here, but my point is that I think too much, too many times, especially white travelers, especially in the past, not, not as much now, but we kind of roll in with this imperious attitude as though, because I have money and I'm coming here, I can have anything I want. I want this, I want that. I, I don't like that kind of travel. I think you should go in and you should be completely humble. If you're in the, the tent of a, of a uh, refugee family in Iraq, the woman that invited you in, she's your boss. She's the one that says you can sit here and you, you do that humbly and you accept what you're given and you be kind. And um, so I know that's a little off track, but it's attitudinal. And I think that um, more and more we're going to see, I think, especially through this time, because I'm watching things like the Black Travel Alliance and Travel Unity and a lot of organizations getting organized to help give more exposure. Those are two organizations people can look up and find um, black professionals that own businesses, own travel agencies, operations, accommodations. Um, and I highly recommend it. And I, my, my gut is that this whole movement will move the ball forward for more, um, for more BIPOC individuals to get exposure for the companies they've either, either built or, in, or are leaders within. So I'm totally for it. We're working on our own plan. It's not public yet because we wanted to take the time to understand how to make long standing material change in our own organization and industry. I've had painful conversations with some of my friends in the community who have pointed out where we've been remiss and I'm digesting that, you know? I grew up in a town with literally, this town that I'm in right now had no black people when I grew up in it, zero. And then one, one child was adopted. So I personally had no experience until I got to college and beyond. And, and I think that that's how, that's how it ends up being a systemic issue is you just, even if you're not, you don't think you're racist, you might be blind to things that are going on around you. And, um, and so we're, we're in our own learning phase. We've started, um, we've started some actual actions but we haven't gone public yet with it just because we want to be really clear and we want to, we want to mean what we say. We don't want to get six months down the road and say, well, 
yeah, at the time we thought that. So we're really, we're taking our time figuring it out, but we're, we're committed to the change. Oh, Shannon, well, good for you guys for taking your time. And uh, it, was, it was a weird thing for a while because everybody wanted to know, well, what is, what is this company's response? Or what is, uh, especially an industry organization, I can imagine the pressure uh, that you guys were under to release a statement and, and all of this. Um, but yeah, this is not something that's going to be figured out overnight, unfortunately. So I'm glad that you guys are really looking uh, at long-term solutions here and not just, you know, paying it lip service and putting up your black square uh, that really does nothing. And, um, you know, going it's, back it's to business good, as usual. Good that, yeah, I think the black square is, was good because it signals something. It says, sure. you know, we're, we're leaning this direction. Now we need to figure it out. And to me, the most important attitude for, for white leaders in the industry is humility. And to, and, and to me, that's not hard because it's like, I know I don't have it figured out. Nobody has it figured out completely. We're all, we're all learning in our journeys. So that's, and, and our team is full of wonderful, big hearted people. Our team does have diversity. We can do better, just like you said, um, our board, has diversity, we can do better. I think the, the biggest challenge is how do we also, as, as an industry and as companies, make people black, brown, um, indigenous feel like, yeah, I can go on that trip too. I see people like me in the marketing. I see, I see welcoming images and, and um, verbiage that says, you're absolutely welcome to be here and we, we'd love for you to come. So, you know, there, it's going to take years and years and years for things to materially change. But, um, but I think it's possible. I think it's absolutely possible. And we, we have to, we, we have to fight for it. No, I, I completely agree. And um, it has to, yes, come from the top and, and we need to work on these systemic changes. But also, if the consumers out there listening can demand this from the people that they buy from, this is this is important. And um, yeah, the verbiage, as you said, is is important. Uh, we were careful not to all of a sudden go and change all of our pictures to people of color because we know that that's not truly representative of our demographic. We are proud again of how many people of color travel with us, but it's not to just go and change, change everybody on our website and, uh, and be misrepresentative then. So yeah, it's a, it's such a complex subject. Um, and Shannon, and I want to get to an equally as complex. Well, I don't know about equally, but very complex subject as well. Uh, climate change. And also I, I just want to point out to everybody that I'll, I'll link up if anybody's interested specifically in what under 30 experiences is doing around social justice. Uh, I'll link to something again in the, the show notes. Um, but Shannon, I know that you, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, are part of two uh, programs, um, at one being Tomorrow's Air and the other being the Adventure Travel Conservation Fund. Um, mm -hmm. I do want to jump directly into Tomorrow's Air and uh, yeah, hope that you can tell everybody a little bit about uh, your approach there with this organization because what I found 
one of the most interesting parts, not only is it a, a collective of travelers, more of a grassroots organization, but also one that is not, uh, not focused on carbon offsets, but literally sequestering, I hope I'm uh, using that word properly, the carbon and then storing it permanently. So it's a, a more, again, a more permanent solution here. So could you tell everybody a little bit more about what's going on with your organization? Sure. And, and we actually, we're involved in a, in a carbon offset program together, or also called Neutral Together, that's with our members. Um, we think that offsetting is important. We also understand the argument against it of just saying that's like putting a Band-Aid. And um, the late, great Michael Kay, who was a, I'm going to use some profanity here. I hope that's okay. Excellent. He, he, uh, he, um, he passed away a few years ago, but he was one of the pioneers of ecotourism in Costa Rica. And um, he used to, when the whole carbon offset movement started, the rest of us were like, yeah, that's great. That makes so much sense. Awesome. Here's a solution. And he's like, so can I buy asshole offset credits? So can I be an asshole to somebody and then pay for it and be okay? Does that make it okay? Or should I not be an asshole? And that made us all kind of sit back and go, well, you have a point there. <laughs> sure. Are we just, are we just paying for our sins basically? You know, I think it's more nuanced than that. I think carbon offsetting is great. I do it when we do big trips, we do it. When we do trips, we do it. Um, we carbon offset, you know, pre-pandemic, we were proud to say that all of our events were carbon neutral, including everyone's flights in, all the adventures, the conference itself. We worked very hard to do that. And I think it's a good step. But tomorrow's air is, is the next step. And this is where we really hope that especially millennials will see this because, you know, to be honest, some of the older generation, not all, um, and I'm in the middle of that world, um, don't see it as a, a real threat, as a real important thing. The Economist, which has to be one of the most straight-laced publications in the world, just published a, a cartoon that shows the U.S. in a boxing ring against coronavirus. You know, they're they're sparring and they're about the same size. And waiting for the next round outside that is the climate change. And it's a significantly bigger monster coming in to box the US. And I thought it was brilliant. And I thought, man, when The Economist does this, it's not like Mother Jones is saying this, you know, nothing against it, but this is The Economist. And so, we're trying to take this very seriously. And so we've launched Tomorrow's Air, which I think is actually a really beautiful organization. And, and I honestly had very little personally to do with the launch because we had passionate team members who, who headed that up. And so Christina, who's really been the, the head of that, has driven this forward. It's, it's a collective, it's a subscription-based model, and people can pay to recapture carbon, carbon out of the atmosphere we work with a, an organization called Climeworks in Switzerland, who's created these machines that recaptures the carbon out of the air, turns it into stone, sequesters it, and then it can be put back in the ground. It's, you know, critics of it would say that it's an expensive method, but, you know, name one technology from the last 20 years that didn't over time evolve and become 
cheaper, 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 and eventually incredibly cheap. And so our hope in getting involved in this program is to help encourage those cutting edge people and cutting edge technologies to figure out how do we solve this problem? Because just offsetting now isn't gonna solve the problem of what we put out into the atmosphere. So tomorrow's air is a, and, and then there's a whole bunch of art uh, interlaced in the process. If you become a subscriber, you get access to this, you know, these, these beautiful things that, uh, that people have created with the concept around tomorrow's air. So I'm just a huge fan of it. I just, I love it. And I'm a fan of Neutral Together, which is also the, the travel industry working to at least offset, at least stop the bleeding um, from, from what's happening. I don't, you know, I'm, I, with all respect to Greta Thunberg, um, people aren't going to stop traveling. They're just not. They're not. Very few will. I've heard of a few people who have said, I'm giving it up. And, you know, more power to you if that's your angle. You do, you're free to do that. The truth is, if the pandemic didn't hit, travel was exploding and destinations, many were getting overrun. And I think if there's a silver lining in this pandemic, it, it is the only thing that could stop over tourism. It is the only thing that could stop it, and it did. How do we go back? Well, we'll see. We'll see how these coming years go. Nobody knows. Our hope is that adventure and sustainability becomes more of the norm versus mass and giant cruise ships and places that are overcrowded. Um, so anyway, um, tomorrow's air is a beautiful thing and I encourage people to check it out. A absolutely. And um, Shannon, if people want to help fight against this uh, massive beast that we have coming for round two that we're all going to need to fight against, I know that they, uh, that they can go and, for one, sign the cleanup pact. And yep. um, I can put in uh, a link to that again in the show notes. But is there anything else that they can do to support or get involved in Tomorrow's Air? Um, people can subscribe. They can sign the pact. They can share it just so that other people know about it. Um, because obviously, the more people that get involved, the more it the more resources it puts into this program that can really start to make a difference over time. No, well, well thank you for that. And also for, for sharing your sentiments um, there about, yeah, just people aren't going to stop traveling, unfortunately. And uh, it was when we first opened up our trip uh, to the Galapagos Islands, you know, we had to sit down internally and also with, with external stakeholders who said, hey, are, are you guys, you guys sure you want to go to the Galapagos? Isn't this, isn't this a victim of over-tourism? And um, at the end of the day, we said, well, people aren't going to stop going there. It's only as the trajectory pre-COVID was, it's only going to increase. And we really wanted to have a seat at the table Yes. so that we could be part of the solution rather than just, uh, you know, just ignoring well, it and say, no, no, we're just going to boycott. Totally, Matt. And there, there are many stories about places that are in trouble now because of the lack of tourism. So I, I don't think that shutting off tourism is good for the world. You know, I, I know Fainan Ecolaj in Jordan has 80 Bedouin families that rely on tourism for their income. And it's, it's a remote location, it's an eco lodge. They only serve 
uh, vegetarian food. The local woman down the street bakes the fresh bread three times a day. The local uh, 20-somethings are the drivers and guides. You know, those, those people are desperately awaiting tourism to come back. Um, poaching, a, a lot of poaching is happening right now because tourists have stopped going to these places and so there are no eyes on the tiger, no eyes on the rhino. We just, in fact, I'll segue into the Adventure Travel Conservation Fund. We just did a fund a ranger program, which was successful actually, which is amazing that anything raising money right now works because it's a brutal time. But we, through our membership and through a bunch of people who care, we, we raised money to fund a bunch of rangers to protect animals those rangers were previously, many of them were getting their funding because of the tourism economy. And when it stops, what are they gonna do? They can't continue to do it forever for free. They need to feed their families. So tourism being shut off is not a good thing. Tourism being moderated, regulated, and made sustainable is vital. And the Adventure Travel Conservation Fund, our other project, um, a nonprofit, it is working towards um, funding grassroots efforts of, of already existing projects or programs that are working. So if, you, if somebody joins the ATCF as a member, they get a vote and they also get to, prom uh, to promote potential projects and say, hey, I know these guys, they've been working on the ground for years trying to reduce pl single-use plastic usage and so here's the project. We'd like the ATCF to fund this. And so then it, it, it ends up going through a process where it eventually goes out to the membership and the membership, each member has one vote. If you're a giant adventure travel company and you're a hundred million dollars, you get one vote. If you're Bob, the guide from Antarctica, you get one vote. It's fantastic. I love it. And so we've, we've, we're in our uh, fourth year this year's going to be a tough one because everything's just gone off a cliff. But, um, but we funded a number of grassroots projects around the world that protect wildlife, the, the environment, that work with local people. In one case, um, a village was, a village of Batwa people were kicked out of a national park. And so the project with ATCF was to help um, relocate them and help build a new village so that they weren't just refugees in their own country um, having been booted because of tourism. So there was a, a negative effect of tourism that then a funding from tourism is trying to mitigate. Wow. Well, Shannon, yeah, thank you again for, for sharing. Um, I know I've kept you quite a long time already. And uh, yeah, I feel like I could talk to you for several hours. Maybe we'll have to have you back on it at some point in the future. I'm sure that I'm sure that we will. Um, and yeah, again, I want to link up some things for, for people, any of these resources on under30experiences.com slash blog. And uh, Shannon, before we go, I do want to uh, end on a, uh, an even more upbeat note because we talked about some heavy stuff here. Uh, the sure. travel industry is, well, obviously we're in a difficult spot, um, mm -hmm. but there's so many people who really care and really, uh, you, you just exemplified that. And uh, there's some big issues that we all want to tackle. Um, while, while staying sane, I know it's, 
It's Thursday afternoon. Uh, you got to get on with your weekend. It's past four. I got a, I got a daughter to, to go and raise, but I have a couple uh, rapid fire hot seat questions for right. you. Are you ready? I promise not to expound on anything. No, no, please. Uh, okay, here we go. Your favorite hike in the entire world. Wadi Rum, Jordan. Beautiful. Your favorite, I say beautiful like I know where that is. I know where Jordan is, but uh, yeah. that beautiful answer, your favorite campsite in the entire world. Mazama, Washington. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite piece of outdoor gear? Um, I don't have it here in front of me, but the grail, the water purifier you can drink out of any river, any, any lake, any, any fresh water source. So I've drank, I've, I've drank water out of the Ganges, the Amazon, uh, a, truck stop, a truck stop sink in Brazil, a swimming pool in India, just to keep it classy. Um, uh, out of a wadi in Jordan, out of a stream in Japan, we we do um, over we do two day uh, stand up paddleboard camping trips down our local river. So I'm I'm actually going to change my my camping spot. My favorite camping spot is a place that we jokingly call Freeburger Island on the Skykomish River. Um, but we don't take water anymore. I just take my Grail G R A Y L, not not I, and um, I can drink out of any fresh water source. I've never gotten sick. Unbelievable. That is pretty cool. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to check that out. And Amazing. last, last question. If you had to vote, and uh, this is a question you might just upset all of your adventure travel uh, <laughs> trade association buddies, but if you had to vote on the adventure capital of the world, oh wow, what would you select? Well, you know, this is going to be a funny answer because I haven't even been there, but just <laughs> so I'm going to get killed by so many of the places that I work with. I, I, I almost never, I almost always refuse to answer these, but I would say New Zealand has done an amazing job and I haven't been to New Zealand. So, so for all of you, of, if there's any of our members that are destinations, please, please don't lynch me. At least I didn't pick somebody that's one of your direct competitors. But um, I mean, I, there's so many places that are incredible. But from what I hear, New Zealand has really done an amazing job of creating the right environment for lots of adventure travel. And they've gotten a bad couple black eyes here and there. But I think that's more just because so many people are doing adventure travel there that, of course, you're going to have incidents here and there of, of accidents and whatnot and um but i was tempted to say colorado because i love colorado <laughs> that would be a darn that would be a darn good pick uh i i hope like you i'm able to get to new zealand at some point and um i'll be up in in colorado hopefully next month so i might have to look you up shannon unless you're you're off Please the do. might i might still be here all right i, yeah. I certainly Will, uh, Shannon, we're going to have a ton of links for people, uh, but if they want to personally reach out to you, uh, maybe on social media or a website that you'd like to send them to, uh, where can they find out more information? I think LinkedIn is the best spot. That's the, that's the place where, um, yeah, LinkedIn is, I'm easy to find on there and, um, 
I tend to use it more than I use the others at this point. Sounds good. Well, Shannon, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on. Hey, Matt, I really appreciate it. And I hope I didn't get too wordy on any of it, but uh, I'm so passionate about the subjects and I really appreciate you thoughtfully uh, bringing the questions to the table. No, you're, you're very welcome. Don't worry. This is, uh, this is the beauty of long form content. So happy to have the conversation. Thanks again. I look forward to our next one. Millennial Travel Podcast listeners, did you enjoy that episode? If so, you will love my new book, The Millennial Travel Guidebook, Escape More, Spend Less, and Make Travel a Priority in Your Life. And yes, all the information applies to domestic travel and setting up your life so you can do the things that you want. Forget just travel. That is what is important to me. So you can check that out on Millennial Travel Guidebook.com and you can get all the show notes for today's episode in on Millennial Travel Podcast. I would be so grateful if you checked out the book, left a review, or left this podcast a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.